All right, welcome to a brand new show. Uh, and we're going to be talking today about uh, panic attacks and panic disorder. Um, there are going to be some people on the show that are, if you're a regular listener to the show and take copious notes on every episode, uh, some of the people that you're going to hear today are people that you already know, but you just don't know them uh, in that this context. Uh, in fact, let me just say who's on the show today. I, we probably wouldn't be doing the show if it weren't for Kara McDonough. We did a show with her about a piece that she'd written about crying in the car. And then she was so great and we had so much fun. I said, what else? And she said, panic attacks, because it turns out she's written about that, too. Since then, she's become a regular panelist on the nose as well, as is Jacques Lamarck, Connecticut-based playwright and director of client services at Buzz Engine. Uh, joining us also, and he's been with us many times before, David Tolan, director of Anxiety Disorder Center and Center for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy at the Institute of Living. So one of the places we encounter uh, panic attacks if we're not actually having them ourselves, which a lot of us do, uh, is in the world of pop culture. Um, if famously, Burt Reynolds, of course, has a panic attack uh, in uh, the mattress department of Bloomingdale's uh, in being there. Uh, there's a panic attack, I think, in one of the airplane movies. Um, I think in As Good As It Gets, Jack Nicholson has a panic attack that he thinks is a heart attack and then later has a heart attack that he thinks is a panic attack. Uh, but most recently uh, in the series Mindhunter, the more button-down of the FBI agents on that particular series. Uh, in this year's series, his name is Holden Ford, I think. Uh, a nurse finds him having an attack on the floor of the hospital after a very frightening encounter uh, with a serial killer that he needs to interview for his job. Here's what that sounded like. Are you all right? I can't, I can't breathe. Did you take anything? I don't know. Do you have any allergies? I don't know. You're not dying. You're in a hospital. I'm trying to warn you. Your attitude is going to bite you in the ass. You're developing a pattern of behavior that will not sustain you here. But the price is gems. You seem to think you're mine. Are we friends, Holden? Who are you? Fuck, police? Torture, mutilation. That is your world. It has made you paranoid. So you hear him gasping, he's on the floor, thoughts and memories are running through his mind. And that may not be David Tolan, all that accurate a depiction of what a panic attack is like. But that raises the question, what do we mean when we say panic attack? Well, a panic attack is, is a firing of what's called the sympathetic nervous system, sometimes called the fight, flight or freeze response. Essentially what happens is that the brain, particularly the limbic system of the brain, signals that there is a threat of some kind which triggers a cascade of hormonal reactions that ends up with the secretion of adrenaline from the adrenal glands which sit on top of the kidneys into the bloodstream. And as that adrenaline enters the bloodstream, it readies the organs of the body to run or to fight. And that includes things like increasing respiration rate so that you have more oxygenated blood and increasing heart rate and making muscles tense and all those things. It's important to recognize, though, that at its core, this is a functional issue. I mean, that is, it is important that our bodies can do this and that we can mobilize for quick threat and quick action when we need to. But some people experience it as a misfire, and it's happening when there's no clear threat to be dealt with. It seems also kind of like an imperfect mechanism because a lot of people's knees buckle, for example, which would 
you know, if you're trying to get away from an emu that's attacking you or something, that's not ideal, right? Well, if that's why it's it's sometimes it's called the fight, flight, or freeze response because mm-hmm. depending on the nature of the predator that's attacking you, sometimes it is helpful to play dead. And so sometimes we do have that freezing up response as well. So Kara, um, you not only have experienced this yourself, but you also, as part of the article you did for the Washington Post, talked to a lot of other people uh, who have it. So I don't know. What did you learn about what it's like, uh, either from your own experience or the people you talked to? Sure. Well, yeah, I wrote a, I wrote an article which was incredibly fascinating about pan- panic attacks. And what I learned, I would say, predominantly is that they can be very different from person to person. I think um, they can be completely out of the blue. And something that they have in common is they're not always – Maybe maybe this isn't true for every person, but a lot of the time they're not associated with whatever stress might be going on in your life. So when it happens, it might seem like something purely physical because you're not sure why it's happening. You're not thinking, oh, my gosh, I have to pay the bills and I have to do this and I have to do this. You're just experiencing this physical sensation and you don't know where it's coming from. And I think that causes people to really freak out. Although, I mean, for example, in your case – it wasn't your panic attack didn't your panic attack came in the middle of the night. Now you were going through some stuff. Once you kind of audited what was going on in your life, it was sort of understandable why you might be susceptible to something like that now. Right, exactly. So I had them in two points in my life. Um, when I was in my 20s and then recently, and I still have them from time to time, only in the middle of the night, heart palpitations, sometimes numbness in my fingers, a feeling of wanting to flee sort of for lack of a better way of describing it, um, a, a real fear that the feeling won't go away. I ended up in the hospital one time when I really couldn't make it go away because I would, wanted to make sure I wasn't dying. Mm-hmm. Um and, and right, when I did sit down, I, I went to the doctor after I went to the hospital and I was like, it can't be panic because I'm not a stressed person. And I stand by that. I don't feel like a stressed person from day to day. But when I went over my past year, we had moved. Uh, my husband and I had both changed jobs. My dad had died of brain cancer, which happened very rapidly. Um, and I think all of that together, when I looked at it, I was like, oh, Yes, it does maybe make sense that I'm having panic attacks. And that, along with getting a diagnosis, made me feel a lot better, actually. You know, Jacques, you've been very public about this on social media, on Facebook, talking Mm -hmm. about this. And I think for a lot of people, because you have this Mercutio-like devil-may-care swashbuckling panache about you, it it kind of probably doesn't fit with people's idea of who you are, right? Well, and – you know, the thing is, I think that there are certain people who want to keep uh, their struggles, whether it's with anxiety or depression or cancer, they want to keep things private, not discuss it. You know, they're afraid it's going to make them look weak or um, they don't want people worrying about them or what have you. And so, uh, you know, in my never ending quest to be um, the center of attention, <laughs> I, um, you know, felt like. It that there was no shame in what I was experiencing and what I've been experiencing and living with, uh, and that you know sharing the you know my struggles, but also the wisdom things that I've learned. Um, I found that the first time I shared it, I was amazed at the at the outpouring, not only the outpouring of support, but people who um, either. Uh, commented on it or reached out to me um, to say, yeah, I've been going through this too and I had no idea. So it's it's the kind of thing that's um, 
uh, I think, pretty pervasive in our culture, but people don't necessarily want to talk about it. Yeah, and David, I think part of it is also, as Jacques says, you know, he, he feels no shame about this. But people do, and there's kind of a continuum of our understanding about it, right? A lot of people will ultimately come to understand it on a very clinical basis, the way that you described it. But there's also a lot of people who think they should or are surrounded by family and peers who think they should push through it, push back at it, fight it off, that it's something that if they – implicitly toughen up, they'll be able to deal with. Yeah, there's a lot of stigma around this stuff still. And I think we have a long way to go in terms of recognizing this as a, as a just a, a natural part of being human. And it's important to recognize that panic attacks are really common. I mean, it's uh, as, as much as a quarter of people in the United States will experience a panic attack at some point in their lives. Now, the the the, the pathological version of this panic disorder is, is more rare. Um, but the experience of panic attacks is really very common and it's, it's a natural byproduct of having a human brain and body. Right. And I, I think there might also be kind of a gender component in how we understand this too. Um, and, and so, Kara, maybe I'll, I'll start with you. Uh, you actually do think that women think about this or some women are inclined to think about this a little bit differently? Um, I think when I was writing my story, one of the statistics I pulled was that women are more prone to them. Mm. Um, I forget what organization I pulled that from, but um, but that that's what I that's what I found. And I do think I do think women think about them a little bit differently. I think whether they're prone to them more or not, I'm I'm going to speak for myself yeah. here, but um, I do think for me at least, thinking about this, there was part of my brain that was like, this isn't a big deal. Get over it. You know, this is this is not something you have to overcome. A lot of women and people experience this. Um, and I, I also think, I was thinking about this gender um, issue when I was coming in today, and I was remembering that there have been a few high-profile men recently who have sort of been lauded for their coming out and saying that they've had anxiety. I'm, I'm trying to remember there was a football player not too long ago, but I can't remember his name. And then Bill Hader, the actor, actually mm -hmm. recently has done a lot of press about how he deals with his anxiety. And I'm not sure I can exactly vocalize this, but I, I, I can't really see a woman doing that, being um, applauded for admitting something that either maybe a lot of women feel like they deal with or um, maybe – I mean, you might even say that some people might think women are dramatizing it a little more. I'm, I'm not sure. Or, I mean, I, I do think, you know, um, women, particularly in the workplace, they feel like that's one more strike that could be used against them somehow. Totally. That they're crazy, that they're, you know, whatever. And I, I do think that men sometimes just feel like they really do need to get tougher. They need to control this thing. Or they worry that they're dying too, I mean, which is mm. not confined to men. But I don't know, Jacques, did you initially when you started getting these things think, uh, you know, you were – Having a heart attack or something? Uh, absolutely. And the thing is there's a history of heart disease in my family. My father had a triple bypass. And so the, the first time uh, that I can recall having a panic attack and not knowing that that was what was happening at the time, I had pain in my chest. And then my heart starts pounding, start getting lightheaded. You feel like uh, you feel claustrophobic. And the terror is real, you know, uh, even though the threat is potentially imaginary. And so, um, you know, I went through a whole uh, process of um, stress tests and EKGs and what have you. And, you know, they're like, you have acid indigestion. 
Mm-hmm. It was literally that's what it was. Uh, was the the pain in my chest was um, was uh, was uh, not gas but acid <laughs> reflux and uh, and so I was like, oh boy, aren't I silly? But it you know at the time it felt anything you know uh, anything close to silly. And then um, you know I was driving a few years ago and had. Um, a massive panic attack uh, that I ended up going to the emergency room because I thought I was having a heart attack again. I, you know, got my acid reflux under control. And uh, so this was, you know, uh, it was incredibly disorienting and upsetting. And, uh, you know, and once again, they're like, you know, quote, unquote, there's nothing wrong with you, which physically that's true. And uh, it was just um, since then, uh, Driving, getting stuck in traffic on the highway has been very triggering for me in terms of uh, anxiety and panic and um, and particularly the 8491 interchange hmm. uh, where all the people are merging and cutting each other off and you're in the tunnel and, uh, you know, several times pulled over on the side of the highway shaking and uh, terrified about having to re-enter traffic. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's... It's uh, this feeling that you're going to die uh, is very real in those moments. Um, by the way, if you're listening and you want to talk about this, I mean, we, we're not in a position to, you know, heal you or anything like that. But if you want to share in some of the ways that our panelists are sharing, our number is one is eight 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 seven two zero WNPR. That's eight 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 seven two zero nine six seven seven. Feel free to call in. So, um, and I'm pretty sure. Well, actually, Jacques, I'll ask you this, and then I'm going to go mm-hmm. to David. But so one of the things I think that you've also had is kind of the fear of having panic attacks, right? That yeah. at a certain point, it's like if I do this, it's going to happen again. Yeah, I don't know if it's a clinical term, but I feel like I've got anticipatory anxiety, mm-hmm. um, and it. uh, yeah. he, and it's you know. Uh, I, I will get up and get ready knowing that I have to commute into Hartford. I live east of the river and uh, there is no choice but to get on 84 essentially and go right into what to me seems like the eye of the hurricane. Um, and, um, you know, I will drive that at that intersection uh, of highways sometimes like six times a day. And every time I worry about it, every, every time. So um – this is a feedback loop, right? Yeah, to exactly. a certain degree. I mean, one way of thinking about this is when a person has developed recurrent panic attacks, as part of what's happening is that their brain is detecting the panic attack itself as being threatening. So in that sense, a person with, with panic disorder has developed what we might refer to as a fear of fear. And if you can just imagine how circular that becomes so that the more fearful you, you become and, and the more physiological aroused, physiologically aroused you get, the more scared you get of that and you start telling yourself, oh, my goodness, it's going to be a heart attack or I'm going to lose my mind or I'm going to lose control of myself or something terrible is going to happen. When you think that, it causes even more physiological arousal, which then serves to further confirm what you were thinking already. And the next thing you know, you're in a full-blown panic attack. So maybe you can also differentiate a little bit more between these episodic uh, panic attacks and what is called panic disorder. Sure, sure. So lots of people experience panic attacks, but about 1% of people have panic disorder. And the, the, the hallmark features of panic disorder are that, that not only does the person have recurrent panic attacks that seem to come from out of nowhere, 
but that also they are chronically vigilant for the next panic attack to occur. So they worry and they spend often a great deal of their time and mental energy wondering when, is, when am I going to have my next panic attack. And often what they will end up doing is altering their behavior as a way of trying to limit the effects of the panic attack or to prevent the, the panic attack from occurring. That behavioral adjustment we sometimes refer to as agoraphobia. But that's a behavioral adjustment to try to make sure that you don't have more panic attacks or that its effects are more limited. Right. I mean, it seems as though that's a kind of ever-closing window, right? I mean, if you're going to say, well, I'm not going to do this and I'm not going to go there and I'm not because I might have a panic attack, ultimately, that, that's also a feedback loop. You just start eliminating other stuff. And some people have gotten housebound yeah. uh, because of this. I mean, it can be that bad, but other people have more subtle forms of avoidance or, you know, they, they won't drive in certain places or they won't go to certain events. Um, sometimes they might need to have a person with them in order to feel okay. Sometimes they have to have some sort of safety behavior with them, like they have to carry their pills or their cell phone or a bottle of water with them in order to feel like they're all right. But all of these crutches, for lack of a better term, just serve to further compound the problem over time and keep the person stuck. All right. So we do have a call from Carolyn in West Hartford. Hi, Carolyn. You're on the air. Hi. How are you? Good. So I have a question about um, dealing with anxiety issues and possibly, um, you know, panic attack type symptoms in teenagers. Um, I work in college admissions and I see a lot of teenagers having a lot of anxiety around the college admissions process and I've even actually witnessed students go into panic attack like symptoms at college fairs. So I'm just wondering from the panel, how do you manage a situation, especially amongst teenagers, um, you know, what, what could I say to these students to, to possibly help them? All right. Well, I think each of our panelists could probably say something about this because I know, Kara uh, and Jacques, each of you have developed. Jacques, maybe you can just talk a little bit about the breathing thing you do, for example. Well, um, I did uh, reach out to the center, uh, the Anxiety Disorder Center at the Institute of Living and, um, and participated in a trial program uh, for a device, uh, it's called the Canary, I think, mm -hmm. Canary System. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it is something that um, basically gives you a paced breathing tone and uh, visual to follow, uh, mainly a tone. Um, and it tracks the amount of um, oxygen that you're taking in. Uh, and the amount of carbon dioxide that you are um, are you are letting out or either holding into your body, and I, I you know the whole thing about breathing, um, you know, is something that's very central to Buddhism and to meditative practices. And I did not realize, and this is being, was a huge breakthrough for me, that when I'm driving and I get tense, um, I will hold my breath. And this will allow carbon dioxide to build up in your system and this allows you to um, – uh, your heart starts pounding because it wants more oxygen in the blood. You start getting lightheaded and dizzy because you're not getting enough oxygen to your brain. Your extremities start tingling because you're not getting enough oxygen to your extremities. So 
Um, so this paced breathing app um, is actually something that you can download uh, for free on app stores. And so if people are starting to um, have anxious or panicky feelings and you're in a place where you can, you know, sort of pull yourself aside um, and just kind of breathe, um, I, I highly recommend this, this uh, app that I use. It's called, I believe, Breath Zone. Oh, and Kara, uh, I don't know. Have you sort of come up with your own strategies or strategies that you might, as a parent, impart to the younger generation about how to deal with this? Sure. So I also rely heavily on breathing, on deep breathing. And I've actually gotten to the point where if I do feel panicky, for lack of a better word, I can pretty much deep breathe myself out of it. I, w- I don't have full-fledged attacks anymore. Knock on wood, I guess. Um but I've, I've just used very steady breathing like you would in meditation or a yoga class. Um, and also just kind of a few mantras, just reminding myself that I'm okay, reminding myself that even though it feels like it might not go away, that I do know what this is. And not only do I know what it is, but I've studied it and I know what the physiological responses are. And that, that really helps me. Um, and I, I totally tell my children, I don't have teenagers yet, but it's coming. But I do tell them when they're in tense situations to slow their breath. And we really work on it. I think it's it's so obvious. And but it's such a useful tool. And it is the first thing that goes. I mean, I can see my sixth grader when she gets tense about homework or getting to school on time. The first thing that starts happening is she is breathing so rapidly. And so it is something that that I tell my kids. I think it's incredibly, incredibly valuable. You know, David, I, I read some of the clinical literature to get ready for this show. And there's some indication that people who have panic uh, attacks in their 20s actually started having them in sixth or seventh grade. They just didn't know the words. They didn't, they were kids and they just, they, they just thought I'm scared or something like that. They didn't necessarily have any kind of clinical understanding of this. But, sure. uh, but maybe you can say a little bit about how this does. Because I, I think Carolyn raises a really interesting point. We put adolescents these days into situations where they're afraid in ways they probably don't need to be, but we haven't really yeah. given them a way to prioritize or create hierarchies of things to worry about. I'm a big fan of, of trying to deal with the thing that the person is afraid of. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a big part of – and that's often a challenging thing um, with, with kids as well as with adults to, to figure out initially what exactly do you fear? And in the case that we're hearing about, I mean, it sounds like you've got kids that are worried about their college applications and kids that are worried about their grades and, and kids that are worried about academic performance and so on. And so in a case like that, I would probably want to teach the child adequate coping strategies like perhaps a breathing strategy um, as a way of, of um, trying to mitigate the physiological arousal that comes from those stressors. But in the case of panic disorder, that's a very different beast. And it is important to recognize that in panic disorder, the person isn't necessarily stressed out about something. So there's no, there isn't necessarily a something to deal with. Rather, the person is afraid of their own fear. And so we have to use a different set of strategies to try to deal with that, with that fear of Fear And often, it may sound paradoxical, but often when I'm talking to somebody who has panic disorder, what I will encourage them to do is actually experience more of the physiological arousal, not less, as a way of starting to to demonstrate to themselves that they can handle it and that they don't have a heart attack and that nothing terrible happens to them. 
So the idea is, is first you have to know what the person is afraid of and then you have to put together a plan for dealing with that fear. All right. So um, we're going to take a little break here, but we are open to taking your phone calls too if you want to call in. It's 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. We're talking about panic attacks. A lot of people have them. I've had them too. Uh, so uh, we'll talk more when we get back. And this pressure that I'm feeling just ain't helping at all These panic attacks, they make me feel like I'm dying Never learning my lessons to one concern We're trying some days I feel like Obama keeps on All right, we are back in the studio with me uh, Our regular nose panelist, Kara McDonough Who's a freelance writer uh, and has written for the Washington Post About panic attacks Her blog is uh, titled Kara McDonough so that's confusing, but it's so it's C A R A M C D U N A. We'll put up a link to it or something on the on the webpage. Uh, Jacques Lamar, a Connecticut-based playwright and director of client services at Buzz Engine. Uh, David Tolan, Dr. David Tolan is director of Anxiety uh, Disorder Center and Center for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy at the Institute for Living. We are talking about panic attacks. Uh, so I said that uh, Kara and Jacques are regular panelists on the nose. This turns out this could be like what we all have in common because Jim Chaplin, who's also on the nose, now. Uh, tweeting to us that when he was 19, uh, he was getting them in a very crippling way. It was a horrible existential wrinkle, he said. He, he read and read, but nothing worked. Uh, he said, I don't recommend this, but the cure for me was being diagnosed with cancer. Uh, those of you who follow Jim's story on our show know that when he was a very young man, he was diagnosed with a rare and almost inevitably fatal cancer, which he kind of miraculously survived. So I guess maybe at that point, he had something else to worry about. But, you know, since he brings that up, um, and Adam from Fairfield, just hang on a second. I don't want to lose you. I want to get you on. But oh no, actually, he he is going to lead us right there. Never mind. Uh, Adam from Fairfield, you're on the air. Hi. Hi. How are you? Good. So my question was about dealing with existential yeah. uh, anxiety. So part of being uh, part of the millennial generation, especially, is that uh, we tend to be less religious than our parents and grandparents. And so part of that is navigating in a world where we may or may not believe in an afterlife. So that can bring on, I think, an extra level of anxiety when thinking about your own existence. And if you have things going on in your life where you feel like you have no control over them, I think the worst thing is to think that, oh, when I pass on, there may be nothing after this, so this is all I get. So I kind of wonder what advice people have for someone who has existential anxiety. Okay, I'm going to get the panel to react to this, but Adam, I'm also just going to quickly tell you, and this comes up a little bit in our final uh, segment here too, but so uh, during 9-11, I was a journalist. I had a kind of different kind of radio show than I have now, but uh, I was on the air a lot just talking to people, and it was a very scary time, and I went down to, to the site itself uh, uh, in lower New York uh, as soon as that was possible. I did a show from New York. I was just very, very heavily involved in covering this and writing about it, and I didn't really deal with my own issues with it. And then I found so obviously the anniversary is today. That's why I kind of want to bring it up right now. I found that about six weeks later, I was just overwhelmed with what I would call uh, an existential anxiety. And it wouldn't go away and it wouldn't go away. And it really did turn into, I don't think it was panic disorder. It didn't have that kind of adrenal firing that David Tolan d describes instead, though I was terrified. And I was, ter I, I would try to, it was 
dark when I would get out of work and I would try to find a route that I could drive home that didn't scare me. But I was just afraid all the time. It really was and, – and, you know, I mean – I'll address this to you, Jacques, since you're a former seminarian. <laughs> like I didn't regard I'm wearing this. So many hats. Yes, today. exactly. So <laughs> you know, I didn't. Me anxious. I, you know, and Jim says uh, same thing. Existential. Adam says existential. And I, I, I'm no stranger to getting clinical help. I've had lots of psychotherapists mm-hmm. over the course of my life, but I didn't really regard this as a clinical problem. Although as I look back on it, I was obviously clinically pretty sick, you know, and I was really almost paralyzed for for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks with this problem. But I think there is a thing that we identify as existential in nature as opposed to be something we could ordinarily talk about maybe in a a therapeutic setting. Well, you know, it's interesting as Adam was, was, uh, you know, outlining either what what he or generationally people are dealing with um, with this is I spend so much time worrying about not what's happen- going to happen to me after, but that something, you know, is going to kill me in terms of, you know, if if you're in a standstill on the highway, that's probably like the safest place you can be as opposed to zipping down the highway at 70 miles an hour. I don't have a problem with zipping down the mile uh, the highway at 70 miles an hour, but suddenly I'm going to die if I'm stuck in traffic. Right. So I am more... Um, you know, afraid of, uh, you know, I think now afraid of the fear, but more, uh, you know, was was afraid of dying rather than obsessing over what was going to happen to me after I uh, after I died on the highway in traffic. So, you know, I I have found, um, despite being a former seminarian, that I find a lot of comfort in um, in a lot of uh, Buddhist. Uh, thinking and reading, um, which I don't necessarily consider to be a religion as much as a philosophy. And I think that there's a lot of um, interesting stuff that one can read by people like Yonge Mingya Rinpoche, who's written uh, quite a bit about the impact of meditation on your brain. Um, but also, you know, it, it dabbles a little bit into spirituality. Also, locally, Chris Grosso, uh, who uh, is the indie another, spiritualist. Another nose panelist. Another nose panelist. Um, his book has been very helpful because it's very non-judgmental approach to, you know, looking at someone who's had a very, very uh, challenging life and has found great um, compassion uh, that's not necessarily religious. So, David, yeah, th- yeah, this is an interesting question, too, because if you're afraid of death, well, you should be afraid of death. That's a sure. scary. Yeah. Yeah. The problem that we run into is when that fear becomes irrational. So, I mean, obviously, it's, it's fine to be afraid of death, and none of us are looking forward to dying, I don't think. But if you start fearing things that are really safe, things that are innocuous, like being in standstill traffic, or you start fearing things that are, in, that are internal to you, like you start fearing... Um, elevated heart rate or you start fearing that tingling sensation in your fingertips or you start fearing upset stomach because that to you signals impending death, that's a sign that this has gone over the line. And that's when we really need to key in on on trying to help the person learn to accept those physiological sensations and those external uh, situations that are triggering their fears. Yeah. I mean, although... You know, to Jacques' point, I was just reading a Q&A over the weekend with Ram Das, who is now I think 88 years old or something. And, you know, there are, I, I know people who 
existentially and spiritually are not afraid of death. And he yeah. appears to be one of those people uh, just because they've kind of you know adjusted to it or something. But Kara, that's sort of the struggle too. You don't – I don't think anybody's looking for a life free of anxiety. But as David says, we're looking for a life where we're not experiencing inappropriate levels of anxiety at weird times. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That was something I that was something I, I touched on in my story a lot, the fear of the fear and how much you might think that is existential. And it's not that people don't have existential fear, but it's really important not to conflate the two. Um, something really interesting happened to me. I I went to a therapist after my dad had died and when I was experiencing these episodes. And I went because my dad had died and it was such a life shift for me. We were very close. We had moved. There were so many huge things going on. I wouldn't call them existential necessarily, but I do think I was having a healthy fear of death and what will happen and people I love will pass on. And when I went to the therapist, I'll I'll just say to the caller, what she did was so interesting. We started talking about very mundane things and things I could control in my life, Um, like maybe getting an extra babysitter for weeks when I was feeling really overwhelmed or, you know, how my career was going or things I was looking forward to and starting to put those things in place and look forward to very regular things again I think was what made me feel better. And I don't know if that's a, a normal course of affairs, but but that was what kind of got me out of this sense of what does it all mean was starting to really look forward to things again. And those things were really small. I right. mean, it was, mm-hmm. you know, going out to dinner with my husband or um, getting a story done on time. Yeah, I mean, for me, uh, you know, a, a very Im- important aspect of, of coming to grips with my anxiety and panic um, is – is standing uh, up to it and not necessarily a you know violent I'm going to take you down anxiety way, um, but saying you know I can't let this stop me from doing what I need to do and living my life, and so I think if you are um, fearful for what may come after you uh, depart this plane, um, is start reading what some great minds have said about those things, mm-hmm. whether or not it's, you know, religious or non-religious, you know, uh, go full Nietzsche on yourself. And so, you know, I, um, you know, I, uh, being afraid of driving, you know, drove into Boston listening to an audiobook about anxiety. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, should be the definition of terror, but I didn't die. Right. And so confronting these things uh, has ended up being much more strengthening to me. All right. Let's grab a quick call from uh, Tim in Winstead. Hi, Tim. You're on the air. Hi. How are you? Good. Um, I, uh, as I was growing up, I had anxiety. And, and now my son is experiencing anxiety uh, relative to his job. He, he has a problem. I guess almost like a poor self-esteem type thing, but it it causes anxiety to him. And I know he has a strong work ethic. And and as a parent, I'm just uh, I'm trying to figure out how can I help him through these attacks. Right. So so is he is he? I mean, there's anxiety. So Tim, just query quickly so we understand. There's anxiety, and then there's panic attacks. Is he having panic attacks or just kind of a high level of it? Well, it's it's panic. They they come on and. like I guess one of your panel members had said, I can remember we'd be in mass, and all of a sudden he'd have a panic attack. Like he'd look at me, and he like cold sweats, and he would say, "I'm I'm going to die." And he was just, you know, yep. he was in his early 
That's a panic uh, attack. <laughs> Sounds like a panic attack to me. All right. Um, we're going to go to Dr. David Tolan here. One th- thing I just want to quickly say, though, is um, if, if you or anybody else is having this experience and you have it a lot, you should consider getting a blood test and having your adrenaline and thyroid uh, levels checked because another thing that can trigger symptoms that are like this are really, really, really high levels of adrenaline in, in your blood or um, hyperthyroidism, too. So, um, you know, you want to maybe at some point make sure it's not physiological in nature. Sometimes it is. But David, what else can you uh, offer about this? Well, the next piece of that, and I, I think your point is very well taken, Colin, that we should make sure that we rule out any physical causes of, of the panic attacks. But assuming that's been ruled out and we are talking about panic disorder, then really the, the next piece is that we want to try to help the person become comfortable with discomfort. Um, a person with panic disorder often gets very caught up in the scramble to feel better. You know, as soon as I start noticing myself starting to experience physiological arousal or feelings of anxiety, I feel like I've got to do something about it. I've got to make myself feel better. I've got to calm down. I've got to do this exercise. I've got to do something to feel better and get myself out of this. And a big piece of what I, I try to suggest to people is that I want you to practice the art of doing nothing. I want you to practice being mindful of what's happening and being aware of the sensations that are happening inside your body and the feelings that you're experiencing, but don't necessarily feel like you have to do something about them. They will pass in time. That What you're experiencing right now is unpleasant, but it's not catastrophic. It's not death. It's not going to be the end of the world. And in some cases, I can even encourage the person to push into that a bit and you know, to, to you know, try to make your heart rate go up even more or try to sweat or try to feel tense. Recognize and really learn and drive it into your brain that those things aren't deadly to you, that nothing terrible happens. And over time, what you find is that, yes, I mean, it's uncomfortable for people to go through that process sometimes, but their brain starts to adjust and they start to feel a lot less less anxious and they're much less likely to have panic attacks. All right. We're going to take a break here. Tim, I hope that was helpful. Uh, We're going to take a break here. Uh, We're going to come back. You're going to hear uh, a little bit of an interview that I did yesterday uh, with um, a writer who also is having this experience. It's triggered in particular by by a kind of news story that I think is probably scaring a lot of us right now. And then we'll have time for the panel to react to that as well. So here we go. You know, if you're listening to this show in its live form, you're listening to it on September 11th. And I've already told many times the story of what happened to me after a month or six weeks after September 11th. Uh, all my duties as a journalist had kind of subsided, and I went into this kind of permanent panic state. I'd pushed it all off and not dealt with it and not reckoned with it. And then maybe more related to the conversation I'm about to have After the Sandy Hook shooting, which John Jankowski and I covered kind of live on the air that day and then for days to come, that did something to me. And I didn't realize what it had done to me until the day of the Boston Marathon bombing, which also unfolded. And John and I were on the air and trying to figure it out. And I would uh, run back to my computer and try to understand in real time what was happening. A lot of images were floating up that weren't 
not curated in any particular way and had, were very disturbing. And I did. I stepped out in the hall and I had a full-blown panic attack. And I thought, I don't even know if I can go back into the studio. I, like, I, I, my brain was saying, I can't do this anymore. So, you know, that's a thing that happens not just to journalists but to all kinds of people. Things that we're not necessarily on the scene for, we absorb all this stuff anyway. Maybe not in quite the same way, but the stress of it gets into us. So here to talk about that uh, is Geraldine De Reuter, writer, public speaker, and the author of All Over the Place, Adventures in Travel, True Love, and Petty Theft. Her blog uh, is called Everywhereist, uh, and it is, it is at everywhereist.com. So uh, Geraldine De Reuter, uh, first of all, hello. Hi. And you recently wrote a piece for BuzzFeed News uh, about this phenomenon and how it has affected you. Uh, you're having a, a similar problem, which is that these incidents of mass shooting seems like they're kind of piling up inside you somehow. Yeah. And I I just kind of openly questioned if it was just me. And it started with an open-ended question that I asked on Twitter, which was, I noticed that in the wake of a mass shooting, I found myself incredibly anxious in public spaces. And I found myself almost making emergency plans. You know, if something happened right now, what would I do? What would my escape route be? And I wondered if I was the only person who did this. And it turns out that I am not alone by any means. It seems that a lot of Americans are reacting to our current climate and the situation and the relationship that we have with guns in this country and the incidence of mass violence that we have in similar ways. We operate in this sort of heightened, uh, anxious emergency mode that cause us to be in a state of anxiety and nervousness when we're in public spaces. Right. And I, I, I totally relate to that. And, and so that's something that we can consciously plan about. But I think there's other things going on in our minds that we're less conscious of. We may not have made a very specific arrangement with ourselves about how we're going to react in, in a given situation. But our brain has been doing something uh, and not necessarily telling us about it. And so, uh, for example, you had an experience that, that I think you didn't expect to have with balloons popping in a, in a public space. Tell, tell me that story. I was at the grocery store with my husband, and it was immediately after uh, a shooting. I can't quite remember which one now. And there were balloons in the floral section, and they had gotten too close to an overhead light. And as a result, the heat was causing them to pop. And it was just a rapid succession of pops. And because of where they were in the store, it echoed. And I turned to leave the store. I had that kick of adrenaline and just sort of that panicked compression of time. And I saw several other people with, with panicked looks on their faces. And I finally heard someone who worked at the store say something to someone in the floral department, like, oh, my God, I thought shots were being fired. Mm. There was that moment where I could not calm down because my body could not process the information that my brain now knew was true, which was that there was nothing to be afraid of. And see, to me, that falls into the second category. Some, some less conscious part of your brain w had been making a plan about that, had at least absorbed in a very primitive way the idea that pop, 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 pop might be, it's, might be one of those stories that you've been absorbing on the news, right? Yeah, I think we all kind of absorb things that we read on some level, and we think it probably 
doesn't uh, really affect us because we're so inundated. But to pretend that it doesn't affect you, that it doesn't have some sort of cost to you personally, I think that's naive. So how are you doing generally? I mean, you had that experience in the store. I mean, I don't know. Would you believe that I'm a lighthearted and funny person? (laughs) (laughs) No, I would believe that. Um, But I guess I'm also asking, in asking how you're doing, I don't know, when you go to vote in a public place, when you go out to dinner, when you go to the grocery store again, when you go to watch a high school sports event, I mean, are you still having that little tingle or are you having that, that, that sense of anxiety? I do. Yeah, I absolutely do. And part of it is just accepting it. Part of it is choosing my battles on days when I feel incredibly anxious. I don't go out on days when there are, you know, when there are huge crowds that I don't want to contend with. I choose not to. Uh, And some days I do go out and I'm able to shelve all of those feelings. And it really, I think for most people who deal with anxiety and who deal with problems of this nature, it kind of becomes a a day-by-day thing where you check in with yourself and you see how you feel. When you have solicited comments from other people. What are you getting back? Absolutely. Everyone seems to feel the same way. I actually found a lot of comfort from talking to people and finding that a lot of us were in the same boat and that so many people make emergency plans, but there are people out there who stopped going to movies because they're so concerned about it. So I think there's some comfort in knowing that you're not alone in your anxiety. So, you know, first of all, I want to, before I forget or lose track of the time, uh, thank Betsy Kaplan, our senior producer who produced this episode. Uh, Betsy, a former nurse, always uh, seems to have a nice touch with this kind of material. Kion Wolf is the person who makes the show sound so good. If you wonder where all those very on-point songs come from, Kion Wolf is the person who finds them and does everything else to make us sound great. Um, So, Kara, you know, at the beginning of the show, David described to us this complex reactive system uh, inside us that really probably is the result of evolution and things that made total sense 70,000 years ago when, you know, you might see somebody get eaten by a tiger and then, you know, you'd you'd know to panic about that and to have this fight, flight or freeze reaction to it. But now we're sort of we're sort of homo, homo media now or something. We're, you know, we're, we're a species that we live in this constant barrage of information. We float in a sea of information about things that happen to people we'll never meet, uh, things that happen in places we'll never go. But that doesn't mean it doesn't affect us in the way she was talking about. No, exactly. And I was so interested to hear the clip you just played because I actually just this weekend published an op-ed in the Hartford Current that was about – how for the very first time, I'm not afraid to go out in public places. I wouldn't say that I have an anxiety about it. But um, after the Odessa shooting, for the very first time, the next day, we were going to a fair, a nice, lighthearted, you know, county carnival. And I said to my husband, do you think we shouldn't go? Um, And I meant it because, you know, it can it can happen anywhere. And I do think that these things I think that that is very different from what I felt when I'm having panic that is undefined. When I have my panic attacks at night, this is an actual fear, an actual ticking of my brain saying, is this risk worth it? And I've decided, of course it is. And I know factually that shootings are actually not that common, despite the fact that they're way too common. Um, but I do think that the it's so interesting to see how our brain sometimes can't differentiate between what is a real fear and um, what what is not. And that it's really, really important to educate ourselves and make those differences. 
All right. So uh, we have about, I've got about a minute left for each of you. Um, so I'll start with you, David Tolan. Um, maybe react to that a little bit too. I mean, it is, you know, we're wired to react in very primal and primary ways yeah. and have panic disorders. The thing is that we have all these secondary experiences these days uh, in a way that probably our systems aren't even wired up to accommodate. That's right. But you, at the end of the day, you have to decide what are you really willing to give up for this anxiety? You know, do, how much do you want to let this affect your quality of life. It is true that there are things out there that one could be scared of and it's it's not at all unusual to feel scared about them. But at the same time, you have to balance that out against quality of life and recognize that I'm not going to let this anxiety or this fear beat me or keep me keep me from doing the things that I want to do. Right. And in a way, I, Jacques, I almost feel like we in the media are a little bit guilty. We're always telling people, killer storm is coming. <laughs> be afraid. Uh, and people pay attention to that because it's adaptive to be aware of things that could kill you. Yeah, I think um, that was probably one of the most brilliant things about uh, Michael Moore's Bowling for Columbine was that he drilled down to, you know, what is, you know, what is causing this? And it was the sense of, you know, this constant sense of danger that we're fed so that people are going out and stocking up on firearms and what have you. And so there's this, this general sense of anxiety. And that's why I listen to Soothing WNPR. <laughs> <laughs> Where we do shows on panic disorder. Yes. Uh, all right. But so, yeah, I mean, we're going to wrap up here. I, first of all, I want to thank uh, once again this terrific panel. Uh, very lucky to have David Tolan, Kara McDonough, uh, and Jacques Lamar uh, here to talk about all this. And, and yeah, if you were listening and some of this rang true, I think the one thing we'd all tell you is don't try to get through this alone. You know, I mean, one way or another, I mean, if you're really having panic attacks, and they're coming pretty frequently. You need to go see a clinician. You may need to get some medical tests just to make sure there isn't a physiological component. But there's all kinds of things that can be done, ways that can be addressed. Some people benefit. Uh, there have been some studies that indicate people can benefit from short-term conventional analytical talk therapy if the thing that's causing the panic attack has some kind of identifiable route that you're able to talk about. Some people will probably benefit over the short term from medications. There's all kinds of things that you can do. But don't do nothing. Don't live with it. Uh, it's life is too short to be feeling that bad on a regular basis. And that's a cheery thought. So uh, we'll stop there.